Good morning. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture. All right. John 20, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put, and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tira. Deep breath into your belly. Here we are, present one unto another. Doesn't that feel nice? It's good, huh? I know so many of you are struggling with so much right now. I want you to just hear me. He's alive. Jesus Christ is alive. That means it's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Deconstruction. It is a very hot topic in the church today. And I would say there is an increasing pace at which every generation, not only millennials and Gen Z, but Gen X, my crew, even boomers, are leaving the church and leaving Christianity. That just seems to be speeding up. The rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S. Nobody's joined monasteries in this culture. The rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, statistically speaking over the last 25 years, has doubled year over year over year over year. What we see is a mass exodus from Christianity from the Western church. Now, deconstruction, this doubting process that causes us to deny our faith, it comes in many different forms and degrees. And no one story is identical to another person's story. The causes of deconstruction are also extremely complicated and nuanced. I don't want to reduce this or oversimplify this. My dear friend Josh Butler, he gives four very broad category causes that he's observed in his own life and in the life of his church for why we might be seeing such massive amounts of deconstruction in this current cultural moment. Number one, church hurt. Church hurt. This is without question in my pastoral experience at the top of the list for those that are wrestling with their faith right now. And I think just as important, a subpoint under church hurt is just an honest assessment of the hurt of the world and of our lives. The suffering that we all experience and the suffering that we see in this life is hard to reconcile with a good God who could have but didn't. And now that ties into the next category, church hurt, but we're also deconstructing because of poor teaching, Josh says. The late modern church of the West at certain points has unintentionally, and I would argue sometimes intentionally, adopted forms of teaching shaped by the world rather than by the cross. Christianity has been presented as some, form of, some form of like personal therapy for our bad feelings, but then our bad feelings don't go away. So what are we supposed to do with that? 
Christianity has been sort of a a fix-all for our lack of flourishing by the American dream standards. Some have made Christianity a very sophisticated self-help program. Some some have presented God as the fulfiller of all of our expectations. And then when he doesn't, what else can we do but deny him? I mean, really. Number three, and this is really important, We are seeing a massive deconstruction and denial of Jesus and Christianity in this modern age because of a desire to sin. Just old school, nasty sin. Now, this one's really hard to distinguish. If you are the one that is in the midst of doubt right now, in deep deconstruction, sin is deceptive. It makes us prideful. It makes us certain that we are absolutely right. It makes us seem like what we are doing is going to lead to flourishing. And oftentimes when we are in this state of calloused heart, when confronted with Jesus's way, his ethic, his behavior, his teachings, well, that calloused heart, it's often easier for us to just opt out and jettison the whole thing, honestly, so we can do whatever we want. You know who you are if you're sitting in the seat right now. I've been there. I've been there. And number four, and this is an interesting one, Josh says that he sees, and I see this as well, a massive amount of deconstruction because of street cred. What he means by that is the only culturally acceptable thing to do in this society is to be cynical, to doubt, to dare not to trust in an authority greater than your own self. And so the power of the crowd is absolutely immeasurable. Mob mentality takes over via one TikTok moment in an instant. Your friend begins to deconstruct. Next thing you know, there's the Instagram post about why Jesus this and why the church that and a little bit of Bart Ehrman and a couple other liberal scholars and suddenly there's a whole movement of your friends deconstructing. You don't want to be the one standing there going, hey guys, this whoa, this doesn't make any sense. Crowd mentality, peer pressure, street cred. Cynicism is the way that our society sets its standard for truth. Who wants to stand out and be the weirdo saying, I still believe Now, these are very broad categories. And again, all of our stories are unique. My own story is fraught with years of darkness, crippling, crippling clinical depression that was awful and literally crushing doubt that I did not think I would ever escape. But here on this Resurrection Sunday, my 24th Easter Resurrection Sunday since I became a Christian, I want to make a bold and a pastoral challenge to you that initially will feel terrifying, but it will end in pure hope and joy and glory. There is light at the end of this tunnel. If you find yourself in one of these categories today, or you will find yourself in one of these categories in the future, I want to invite you to be brutally honest with yourself about your doubts and why you're deconstructing, and I want you actually to get all the way to the bottom of it. I do not want you to flee deconstruction. I want you to take it down to bedrock. I want you to doubt and then doubt your doubts and then doubt those doubts. And then I want you to deconstruct those doubts. And I want you to deconstruct every belief system that is propping up your current moment in this life. And then I want you to take that pyramid of marbles that you're holding and just let it go. Let it go. I want you to ask the hardest hard questions, the most uncomfortable, make me squirm questions. And then I want you to seek answers with all you've got. And by asking those hard questions and seeking those answers with all you've got, that is what I mean by honest deconstruction. 
I don't mean taking a belligerent stand where you don't actually look for answers to your doubts and questions. I am encouraging you to deconstruct to the point where you become desperate to find answers. True doubt drives desire to get answers. I have lived in this insanity in my mind for 25 years now following Jesus. I need an answer. I need an answer. I need an answer. And that's actually a healthy way to walk with our Lord. Healthy deconstruction does the work to find answers. And it doesn't stop until they're found. Or, this is what I found more often than not, peace comes in the non-answer. When you finally just come to surrender to mystery, it is a sweet thing for the soul to finally say, okay, you are bigger, wiser, smarter. You see more than I see. And so I'm able to surrender this cynicism, this doubt, this analytical opposition. I'm able to surrender it because I trust you. True deconstruction is going to press in this morning. It's going to cry out. It's going to read. It's going to think. In other words, real deconstruction is not satisfied just sitting there in limbo, distracting our minds with numbing agents to avoid the doubt. Real deconstruction gets confrontational. It goes for the guts of truth. Thomas, our beloved brother, this character in the story that Tiara read for us, Thomas got to this place. He was desperate. He was going for the guts of truth. He was demanding truth. He was doubting, yes. Deconstruction, use whatever word you want to describe, dear beloved Thomas. But the man wanted answers, and so he pressed in. He stood his ground. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We believe the resurrection. We are Christians. But he said there on his little Instagram thread, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were, and put, I will not believe. Now listen, Thomas has gotten a bad rap through the centuries. Doubting Thomas, the church has said with disdain, as if none of us are struggling with doubt at all. How could he? Why would he? I would never. (laughs) But we can honestly learn something from our beloved friend, Doubting Thomas. I can't wait to meet the man because I resonate with him. He wanted to get, and he was gut-level honest about where his heart was, what his needs were, and his desire to see Jesus. And it was this man's honesty, I believe it was his deep honesty and his desperate hunger to know and to believe the truth that Jesus honored and came to him face-to-face with his living, breathing reality, to which when he was confronted with the living, breathing reality of Jesus, Thomas responded, my Lord and my God, and you will too, if you will follow his heart and his way. My Lord and my God. I think this generation is actually a generation of Thomases. Every one of you kids that I have walked with through this horrific process of darkness and deconstruction, what I hear you doing is standing your ground and you're saying, unless Jesus shows up for real, I'm not doing this farce thing anymore. Unless the church means something and there's actually good coming in the world through this resurrection power, I can't do this. Well done. You see, if we are being honest and humble in our hearts, about our deconstruction and our doubts. We're not just distracting ourselves. We're not just sitting in limbo, but we are pursuing. We're desperate. We're gut level. If we're putting our foot down and we're saying, I need to see. I need Jesus. I actually want Jesus more than anything. Friends, he will show up. And this is why. We cannot deconstruct Jesus. 
We can as much deconstruct Jesus as we can deconstruct the solar system surrounding us right now. As you press into your doubts, what you're going to actually discover as you get through the layers is you're not deconstructing Jesus or Christianity. You're actually lamenting and you're actually self-protecting from pain experienced in his communities. You're not actually doubting God. You're beginning to deconstruct and doubt teachings about some sort of westernized version of a supernatural vending machine that if you just punch in the right prayers, you get out of that whatever you want. That should be deconstructed. And so this morning on Resurrection Sunday, let deconstruction take you where it needs to because honest deconstruction is going to take you to the bedrock of reality. And what you find at the bedrock of reality is the resurrected Jesus waiting there for you, accepting you and loving you. St. Paul said as much to the Corinthian church. Listen to these words. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Everybody that's died, if Jesus isn't alive, they're dead. It's over. If only in this life we have hope in Christ we of, uh, of all people are most to be pitied. Paul never pulled punches with his community. This is a bold statement here. Paul was saying, if there's no resurrection, then what we are doing here right now, this is really silly. Paul was saying, if Jesus is not alive right now, not only is what we're doing right now kind of dumb, it's actually kind of crazy. Someone should actually come alongside and help us out because this is actually pathological what we're doing. We are living in some sort of strange, distorted form of reality. It's a collective form of insanity if Jesus isn't alive. And actually, Paul says, we should be pitied. People should look at us with kind of squinty, like, I'm really sorry. You guys are doing that weird church thing. You have these weird sexual ethics, and you have these weird identity markers, and you do these strange things. On uh, I've got a good therapist for that. Do you need some help? That, if Jesus is not alive... That's what Paul is saying. And what he's doing here, for those that are deconstructing, is he is clarifying where we all need to start. We have to start with the resurrection if we are truly Christian. And we should, we should doubt and deconstruct anything and everything that is not built on the foundation of the resurrection. Paul's statement this morning actually emboldens you to try to take down your beliefs down to the resurrection. Paul says, if this isn't true, man, the way you find out is you stood, you start asking questions, you challenge, you explore. Because why would we want to do this for nothing? Why would we base our lives on a non-reality? Why would we seek to obey and change and, and do anything else prescribed in all the libraries of Christian teaching if Jesus is not alive? You see, the resurrection, friends, is like gravity. It's like gravity. Gravity and the resurrection is either, it is either touching every single thing, every atom in this universe right now, including you and I and deconstructionists and faith-filled believers and Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and atheists and agnostics and Satanists and saints. The resurrection is touching everything right now 
or it's not, and we should just go get brunch. Do you see that? Do you see bedrock here? Do you see gravity touches everything, or we simply believe that it doesn't? And so, I'm going somewhere with this track, just a little bit longer. There's an if-then logic when we start with the resurrection for deconstructionists and for those reconstructing. There's an if-then logic that begins to rebuild and reconstruct everything about everything. When we hit the bedrock of the resurrection of Jesus, in other words, there is this, if Jesus is alive, then this. Let me just give you a few examples. If Jesus died and rose from the dead, if he's alive right now, then the words of the Bible that he claimed to believe in, we can believe in. They are true and authoritative for us. If Jesus is alive, then he has indeed poured out his spirit on a community of people. And though that community of people is filled with sin and problems, this community of people will never cease to exist, and we are a part of it. If he's alive, he prayed for us to love and to stay in his community, to forgive and be forgiven, to work through it and trust. We can't leave the church if Jesus is alive. We're his body. If Jesus is alive, then your wounds will be healed in a resurrection just like his. If Jesus is alive, then the inauguration of his kingdom on earth has already begun, and we are part of that. If Jesus is alive, then the rule of invading tyrants and the cruelties of wicked humanity are coming to an end. Christianity is not desperately trying to prop up a flimsy set of beliefs and behaviors based on human power dynamics and spiritual superstitions. Christianity is not a house of cards easily blown over by the soft winds of skepticism and science nor the cynicism of philosophers. If the resurrection happened, then Christianity is the fountainhead of reality within which science and philosophy and cynicism exist. Christianity is not this finicky attempt at joy that's just suddenly crushed the minute we experience suffering or see pain in the world. If the resurrection happened, then suffering is the birth pains of a universe preparing to burst forth in fullness of new creation forever. Don't you see? I have to see, Thomas said. Don't you see? If you are deconstructing honestly, at some point you will become like our brother. I have to see the risen Jesus. To believe, I have to encounter the resurrection for myself. And that is exactly what Jesus wants for you more than anything. If this morning doubt and anger and hurt are driving you to cry out, God, where are you? God, why won't you? God, why didn't you? The resurrected Jesus is coming for you. But you have to be looking and you have to be ready. So how, as we come to a close this morning, how can we arrive at the bedrock of resurrection? Two things. Listen to the eyewitnesses, feel the wounds. We're going to go head and heart, and then we're going to go baptize people. Listen to the eyewitnesses, head, rational, empirical, historical evidence. Listen to the eyewitnesses, wrestle with what they said, and then we're going to go heart, feel the wounds. Let's talk about this. Listen to the eyewitnesses. When we open the gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth and the letters of the New Testament, we are reading documents that are eyewitness accounts of the events that transpired. Last night, we're laying in bed, watching Star Wars, our Sabbath tradition. And all of a sudden, there at the end of the street, and the horn goes off, massive wreck right down at the end of the street. And we all, neighbors, everybody, running to the end of the street to make sure nobody's hurt. Once we see nobody's shirt, Nobody's hurt. Everybody gets calm. And then it's just gawking at the car wreck. 
There, there was probably 50 neighbors out there last night, all of us eyewitnessing. And then what happened after the eyewitness to the event? The horn was going off, and we all walked back, and we began to reflect on the story. The oral tradition of the wreck in South Park last night began to be birthed forth and spread. And by this morning, the news of the wreck had spread throughout the entirety of the neighborhood, and everybody knew because eyewitness accounts had given an account of what happened last night. Friends, this was not myth. This Jewish carpenter was known throughout the Middle East. His teachings had caused tons of controversy. He was such a rebel figure. Everybody was talking about Jesus. Everybody saw him on the cross. And post-resurrection, we are told, hundreds of people from Matthew and Mark or Paul and Peter, we were reading the the words of people that saw Jesus alive, heard him teach, saw him die, saw him resurrect. Now listen to me, for you analytics, for you academics, for you scholars in the room, there is no, follow this up with Google. There is no historian worth his salt in modern academia that denies the existence of Jesus. The mythical Jesus was long ago set in the grave never to resurrect. Jesus was a real human that existed. There's no historian that says Jesus didn't exist. Beyond that, there are only a few academics, usually Islamic scholars, who would deny that Jesus was actually crucified under Pontius Pilate, the Greek pontificate of his day. The rub for the skeptic and for the saint is the resurrection. Everybody knows that this Jewish stonemason got himself in trouble with the Roman Empire and got himself tossed up on the cross. Where the rubber hits the road is the resurrection among scholarship. And yet... We have to wrestle with these eyewitnesses who said they heard Jesus say, I'm going to be crucified and raised three days later. He said over and over and over that after his resurrection, he would show himself to his followers, which he did, hundreds of them. There are little things that we as Christians, I think, miss about this eyewitness thing. And I just want to drive this home. Let's read Luke 1, 1 through 4 together. Many have, this is Luke the doctor. He was a trained medical physician. So he was, he was uh, an educated man of his day. Many have undertaken to draw up an account, he says, of the things that have been fulfilled among us. The wreck in South Park last night. This is his, this is his, eye, his eyewitness account. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Eyewitnesses. The text itself. The text itself says that Luke is writing from the perspective of somebody who heard the eyewitness accounts. This is how we do evidence and law in courts of law today. With this in mind, Luke says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, probably a, a rich Greek a patron of Luke. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. How many of you have met George Washington? Oh, one of you. Nice. <laughs> you, how many of you know about George Washington by a show of hands? historical records based on what? Eyewitness accounts. Why is it when we come to the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, we're like, mm, 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 mm. no, no. Uh -uh. But when it comes to every other historical event that you and I would say, for sure, absolutely, eyewitness events. Why, why, why? Sin, sin, sin. So much could be said here about this eyewitness reality of the Gospels and the followers of Jesus. But if we are truly deconstructing in an honest way, then you'll begin to do the work and you'll begin to ask the questions and you're going to follow up with a coffee for me and I'm going to recommend some great books and we're going to read them together. And then at some point you're going to realize, 
oh my gosh, these people saw something. I can't just dismiss this. I have to wrestle with the fact that this Jewish stonemason got himself in trouble with the Roman Empire, crucified by professional soldiers, and then three days later, hundreds of people said they saw him. And they wrote it down, just like I know about George Washington, because somebody wrote it down. And you need to think about the eyewitness accounts here, friends. There's a few things about them that solidify this for me over the years. Number one, first century Near Eastern people, they were just like me and you. Namely, they did not believe that people raised from the dead, especially after being professionally tortured and crucified by Roman soldiers. They didn't believe that. It wasn't, there's this arrogance that we have as moderns where we're like, oh, we're so scientific, we're so smart, we know nobody would raise from the dead. They thought the exact same thing. When people went into the grave in the first century, they stayed in the grave. And yet, hundreds, Paul tells us, hundreds saw him alive. By the way, Paul says, some of those guys are still alive, so you could go talk to them. Paul right there is tipping his hand saying, hey, if you want to shut this down, just go talk to some of the eyewitnesses. He, so much can be said here, I don't have enough time. These eyewitnesses also declared him to be God. Here's where it gets really weird. There were those that were first century Jews who saw him, and having seen him alive, they said, he is my Lord and my God, and they worshiped him. Friends, first century Jews, the thought of calling a human being God would get them stoned to death. This was a radical, categorical transformation of heart and mind around who they were and who they understood Jesus to be. And the fact that they abandoned thousands of years of Messianic and Jewish tradition, never call a human God, and then Jesus shows up on the scene alive and well, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, the only reason a first century Jew would have done that is if they saw Jesus alive and came to believe what he had said about himself. Nothing else makes sense of this radical change. And then finally, as you listen to these eyewitnesses, you need to understand most of them died for what they were saying. This afternoon, if I go around my neighborhood, did you hear about the car wreck last night? Yeah, nobody got hurt. It was great. You need to deny that or I'm going to put you in prison. There was no car wreck last night. South Park's the safest neighborhood. One of my neighbors goes crazy on me. South Park is one of the safest neighborhoods. There's no way there was a car wreck last night. Yes, I saw it. I was there with my eyewitness. I saw it. No, if you, don't, if you don't stop talking about this car wreck you saw last night, you're going to jail. But I saw the car wreck. I, ha- I actually saw the car wreck. I'm, li- I'm using a silly, less than illustration here to go to this huge moment. These people were tortured marginalized. They were thrown in prisons. Eventually, they were murdered and martyred, all being told, this Jesus did not raise from the dead. And if you don't stop usurping our society with your crazy stories about a risen Jewish peasant, you're going to prison. And not only are you going to prison, we're going to kill you. And they died saying, but I saw him alive. Do you understand the gravity of that? Listen, I can almost guarantee if we went to our little local UFO watch club... (laughs) And they're all certain that they've been abducted and seen UFOs their whole life. But then somebody came in there and said, look, you guys are all crazy. If you don't stop talking about this UFO stuff, you're dead. We are literally going to kill you. I think most of the UFO club would be like, yeah, you're probably right. I maybe didn't see anything. It was probably weird burrito and a bad dream. I don't know. Now, there may be true believers that say, no, I saw it, willing to die. The point is their psychology, though. Think that you would have to wrestle with that then. Like, are you sure you want to die for a UFO sighting? You really believe that. Hundreds of people really believe this. Now, some of you may be asking, as my wife did, well, what do you do for about other religious zealots that have died for their faith? 
You have the cults where they drink Kool-Aid committing corporate suicide. You have Islamic suicide bombers on the fringe, fringes of extreme Islamism, Islamic uh, faith. Two things about that. Number one, none of these Christians were committing suicide as an act of violence against somebody else. They were being murdered themselves. They weren't actively pursuing death. They didn't want to die, friends. They did not want to die. And so they were dying against their will. And number two, that actually just proves my psychological point. Those that kill themselves in these cults for, or in, in Islamic bombings, they die because they actually believe wholeheartedly, which is the point that you and I have to wrestle with. You can call them crazy. You can say that's completely ludicrous. But what you can't say is that they don't believe in something beyond what we can see. These people said, I'm dying. And I'm telling you, as an eyewitness, I'm dying because I saw him alive. Simon Greenleaf, he helped to put the Harvard Law School on the map. He wrote a treatise on the law of evidence, which is still regarded as probably the top-tier work on establishing legal evidence. Professor Greenleaf had stated to his Harvard Law class that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend. There were three of his students in that law class that day, and they said, Professor Greenleaf, we want you to take your teachings on how to, how to look at evidence in the, in the court of law, and we want you to apply that to the resurrection account. Greenleaf accepted and so this world-class expert in evaluating evidence came to the conclusion that this dramatic change, the death of these disciples, could not have happened. They would not have called him Lord and Savior. They would not have died unless they believed that they had truly seen him. Greenleaf reasoned that there was no group of people who could have maintained the story with such consistency as the first century church did through all the levels of persecution that they endured unless they believed and knew it was true. And so after systematically evaluating the evidence, Greenleaf said that he would reverse his bias against the resurrection. He actually said this, quote, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. I don't care how skeptical you are today. You have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with that. And you have to come to some conclusions. You see, to meet the risen Jesus is to meet the Jesus that was seen by hundreds of people and written about. And you have to wrestle with that evidence. And as every time I have tried to bail on Christianity, and by the way, I have tried to bail on Christianity many times. I've been a Christian for 24 years. I don't feel afraid to tell you this as your pastor. I have tried my best to deconstruct it down to bedrock and then bail and go do whatever I want. And every time I'm confronted with this, but this peasant carpenter, stonemason, got himself in trouble with the Roman Empire. And the only thing that makes sense of how this thing even got off the ground how Christianity even swept the empire within 300 years is that he's alive. And then that starts me at the foundation. If he's alive, that means this. 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 If he's alive, I have to submit. And on it goes. And I've been through that cycle many times, and now I'm just enough through that cycle where I'm like, I'm not even going to go back to ground zero. I'm just going to remain a Christian and keep moving forward, trusting. <laughs> now, let's go from the head to the heart. I realize I'm going just a little bit long, but this is, this is where I think it hits home for our moment, for all of you, for me too. Feel the wounds, the head. Look at the evidence. Listen to the eyewitnesses. Wrestle with it. But then we have to feel the wounds. Track with this. 
Our dear friend Thomas, he wasn't satisfied with the eyewitness account of his buddies. He's like, I need to see Jesus' wounds. Now listen, we have no record of, doing, of Jesus doing this for any other follower other than Thomas. We don't have any record of any of the other saints of God being able to actually touch Jesus in this way. And what we see here, I believe, John, the gospel author, is creating this story as a bridge. Thomas serves as a bridge character from the disciples to the modern church. So he was this final eyewitness of sorts, given this opportunity out of his hunger and gut-level honesty of what he needed to believe. And as he came to belief, this little scene becomes the bridge for us, the millions upon millions who would see the physical wounds of Jesus through the eyewitness accounts and be able to touch them and feel them through that unseen way. But what I actually mean by feel the wounds isn't the wounds of Jesus. This morning on Resurrection Sunday, you need to feel the wounds of this world. You need to feel the wounds of the last two years. I don't mean to overwhelm us. It's a joy-filled morning. We need to feel the wounds of our Ukrainian family being bombed out of their homes. We need to feel the wounds of George Floyd. We need to feel the pain, the political upheaval, the racial schisms. We need to feel the pain and feel the wounds of the thievery and the horrific events that are happening all around us. And then we need to feel the wounds of our own lives, friends. We need to feel the wounds of our own suffering and injustice. We need to feel the wounds of the suffering that we caused and the injustice that we brought about in this world. We need to feel the wounds, and we need to feel this deep ache and longing for total healing, for complete equity and perfect justice. We need to feel the wounds that we might long for all wrongs to be made right because, because... When we look at the eyewitnesses and we listen to the eyewitnesses and we look at the evidence, when we begin to feel the wounds of this world and of our own soul, we begin to actually want like what Thomas wants. We want resurrection. We want it. We want healing. We want forgiveness for our guilt. We want forgiveness for the wounds we've inflicted. We want, we want healing for the wounds laid upon us, and we want healing for the wounds given to others. We want justice. We want perfect justice. And so when we begin to actually feel the wounds and no longer deny and no longer dismiss and no longer distract, but we feel the wounds of this world, we discover there is literally no other way than the death and the resurrection of Jesus for mercy and grace and forgiveness and justice and holiness to be accomplished all in a singular event. Humans... We can go forth and we can get justice in some measure. We can do a little bit of justice, but it's always imperfect. It's always incomplete. It's never cosmic in scale. And by the way, when we do justice, our personal wrongs are never judged. At least mine aren't. When I do justice, I'm doing justice because I'm right. I'm never to be judged in that process. We need forgiveness and we want to forgive, but who's going to absorb the cost of that? You and I? at a cosmic scale? And then when we go to heal our, our own wounds, I'm just going to buck up, positive, positive think, therapize my way into joy. We don't have the power. It never sorts itself out. And so when we feel the wounds, the cross and the resurrection, 
the cross and the resurrection accomplish for us all of our deepest longings when we feel the wounds. Justice is served in Jesus's death. Mercy is given for our own failures. Forgiveness is poured out. And the resurrection assures us of a total healing, both spiritually and physically. The resurrection is the beginning of all wrongs being made right. It's the inauguration of new creation. And so no other religious system or attempts of humans get even close to accomplishing all of this. In our deepest being, we want this to be true. A deliverer who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. A doer of true justice who brings full equity to humanity. A purifier who makes all the stains of our guilt clean. A restorer who accepts us, removes our shame, and makes us brand new. A purpose giver who appoints our lives to fulfill his will. A champion who conquers evil and death forever. To meet the risen Jesus, we have to feel the wounds of this world. And then we have to long for right and healing and begin to see the only way that this is healed. The only way the wounds are healed. The only way that this stuff is made right is the resurrection. That's not an analytical, evidence-based belief in the resurrection. It's just the gut level, I want this to be true. And only then, only then when you allow your own personal wounds and the wounds of this world to take you to Jesus, somehow metaphysically in the realm of the spirit, he says, touch my side. I'm here with you. Here, touch my hands. I know what it is to be shamed. I know what it is to be abandoned. I know what it is to be bound. I know what it is to be oppressed. I know what it is to be unequally treated. I know what it is to be warred against. I know what it is to be killed. And so our bridge brother, Thomas, Jesus said, put your fingers here, Thomas. See my hands, put them in my side. And then the ever gentle, but I think with the power of a trillion sons to Thomas, he said, stop doubting and believe. And to you and I this morning, no matter where you are in your journey, if you will listen to the eyewitnesses, look at the evidence, and then just feel the wounds, and then hear your king. He commands you this morning, stop doubting and believe. Start at the resurrection. And listen, if you, if you can wrestle through the evidence and the eyewitness accounts and the wounds of this world and figure out a way to fix it without the resurrection, I will follow you to my grave. So far, Jesus is the only one that has been consistent and clear enough and able to do rationally and emotionally for me everything that is needed for belief. And some time ago, I think it was my move from Seattle to San Diego. It was either the vitamin D or the Holy Spirit, one or the other. I just woke up one morning. I was like, I'm not going to doubt anymore. I'm done. This is dumb. I'm trying to hold God hostage with my doubt punching the vending machine of this Western Christianity that will not give me what I want. Therefore, I'm done doubting. I'm going to do what God wants. And Jesus said to me, as he says to you on this Resurrection Sunday morning, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This glorious Sunday, dive into deconstruction wholeheartedly. Strip it down to the foundations. Anything that does not begin with and is not built on the resurrection, let that pyramid of marbles just fall apart. 
And then listen to the eyewitnesses. Look at the evidence. Feel the wounds of your soul and of this world. And there is where the wounded Jesus meets us, alive. Will we see him physically? Probably not here on this Sunday morning, although there are accounts, especially in the Middle East and in the underground church in China, of Jesus coming to people in dreams and visions. But we all this morning are invited to place our life in his wounded hands, our doubt and our hurts, and be healed. And truly, friends, one day, because of the resurrection, because what we're doing isn't pathological or silly, with Thomas and all of creation, we will see the physical resurrected king. We will see him, and we will all dwell together, and all that is wrong in this world will be made perfectly right. And you and I, we will reign alongside him. Trust, receive, rejoice. He has risen. Father, as we prepare to come to baptisms this morning, God, may these testimonies inspire us. We worship you, and we trust you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.